I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello, ACSS listeners. Today, we are doing podcasts with the Development Intelligence Lab Senior Analyst, Heather Murphy. So in this podcast, we'll be discussing international development policies in Australia and its impact on the surrounding countries such as New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands. In addition to this, of course, we'll be embarking upon an exploration of the lab as a think tank and its involvement within the region, delving into selection of its research endeavors. So Heather... We'd like to hear from you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your involvement with the lab. What's the lab mission? How does it work with the Australian development ecosystem? Thanks very much, Vishwas. It's really great to be here and great to be uh, speaking with you and all of your listeners. So, yes, I, I work for the Development Intelligence Lab, which is a think tank working on development cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. It's about two years old. It was founded by my boss and CEO, Bridie Rice, uh, who uh, really came up with the lab. It was, it was her kind of brainchild after her work in various parts of the development ecosystem, um, really looking to uh, inspire conversations and debate about modern development cooperation here in Australia and in the region. So the lab has uh, two kind of key things that it does or two key streams of work. So one is we inspire ideas and debate about development and foreign policy. And the other thing is that we do is that we tackle live problems and challenges that are facing development practitioners here in Australia and also across the region. So we do that in a number of ways and across a number of platforms. So um, there's our website, devintelligencelab.com, which which I don't rec- uh, recommend all of your listeners to check out. But we have a variety of uh, channels that we run. So one is our readout podcast, uh, which looks at development issues of the day. Uh, the Intel, which is a short question and answer series that poses thorny questions uh, facing development practitioners and gets three perspectives on uh, things that Australian policymakers could do in response. The Pitch, which is our series of uh, bespoke policy ideas, ready-made policy proposals. Our Situation Room events, which is a Chatham House-style dialogue that brings together people from all across the development ecosystem to talk about some of the key issues. And of course, our other analysis products. And as, w- as well as those public facing pieces of work, we also have our direct applied research and analysis projects, working with a range of government and non-government partners. 
So in terms of the lab's mission, well, it's it's really to inject modern development insights into uh, Indo-Pacific thinking and strategy around development. So an example of that is really our flagship research project, which uh, the lab conducted late last year and early this year, which was called the Development Policy Pulse Check. So that was a project that went to 100 experts on development policy in the region, 50 here in Australia and 50 that were out in the Indo-Pacific region, and really uh, quizzed them, uh, did a series of surveys asking those experts what Australia's new development policy should be focusing on. So it was providing advice back to government on what are those areas that the policy should focus on, uh, but also taking a temperature check of the most pressing issues that development practitioners are, are looking at. So that's just an example of the kind of work the lab does. I've been with the lab for about four months now, uh, so I joined coming out of uh, the government sector and um, really excited to get working on it a few of those platforms and projects that we've got going. That's extremely enlightening to hear. I mean, I myself as uh, quite an enthusiastic follower of Lab, I read the intels and the readouts every day and it's got posted every Thursday, right? So yep, that's, that's right, the intel coming out every Thursday. That's amazing. And I always go for like the pulse check as well and asking those thorny questions to government policymakers. And of course, you coming from the government background to the think tank, it's quite a not so that transition, but again, in terms of working and the, you know, and the research diversity it requires, it's amazing, right? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So how would you define the relevance of the think tanks in the current policymaking environment, since you are coming from, uh, you know, the government departments, like first before working in OSAID and now DFAT and then finally with the Development Agents Lab. So, and what do you think, like how Australia faces the, the sharpening geostrategic circumstances with respect to think tank? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, something that I've discovered as I've joined the think tank sector is that there are all different types of think tanks. Um, no one really looks the same from the outside or from the inside. Uh, but something that a, a lot of them share is those commitments to values around contestability, debate, and also a, a little bit of accountability. So for the lab, really, our core mission is, as I said, around putting insights uh, from development practitioners and people who have lived experience of, of working in that development space into the hands of policymakers. Uh, and then you see other think tanks in the space approach things from a different way. They've, they've got much more of a public commentary and kind of shaping and naming the, the debate function, which is something that we seek to do as well. I think um, think tanks in the foreign policy sector and the national security sector really important because um, it's, it's a sector where there isn't really a natural domestic constituency. Other, unlike other areas of government policy, um, the, the beneficiaries or the people impacted by policies in this sector aren't necessarily in Australia and they're, they're not voters um, and they don't necessarily have access to the same kind of voice or platform uh, that, that people in Australia would. So... It's really important that there's a think tank ecosystem that can advocate for uh, different or better decisions and policies and that can really provide that external um, sort of scrutiny of, of those decision-making processes. And I think as well, as your question alluded to, in, in the circumstances we find ourselves, there has been some public commentary in the Australian foreign policy space about the increasing securitisation of foreign and development policy choices. So again, I think for that reason of having that 
uh, public commentary on decisions that we do need to have an active public debate about some of those major strategic shifts and make sure that those policy decisions that are being made are based on evidence and they're based on really rigorous contestability and debate. Um, so from my perspective as a, a policy maker and as an analyst and all source analyst working at the Office of National Intelligence, um, from my perspective think tanks were really critical as they helped to provide new ways of thinking about issues. They really connected me to sources of expertise and insight and also just the raw data and all source intelligence that as an all source analyst, um, open source intelligence, sorry, uh, that, that you need um, was just really critical. So for example, some of the work that the Lowy Institute has done around um, really big data sets around the Pacific and, and aid in the Pacific has been um, really valuable to the work that I did in, in government. That's amazing. I mean, I would like to just reiterate that thing um, which you said that, of course, policy making requires a lot of logics and uh, rational thinking behind. And of course, think tanks is like one of the major institutions which like equip them, major political players, I'll say. And since we are like talking about the development policies, so like let's start up with the very recently released international development policy uh, by Australian government and produced by DFAT, which was released on 8th August. So what would you say is the new and novel in this policy, if you would trace it back to its previous versions, and what's missing, if you would like to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the fact that we have one, that we have a policy after almost 10 years is, that's really amazing. Um, and that's definitely to be commended. Uh, the last uh, policy, that, well, the, certainly the last big independent review of the aid program was done in 2011. So it's been quite a long time um, since there's been a major policy statement. Uh, and it's definitely something that was signalled early on from this government that that would be a priority of theirs when they came into power. Um, so what, what's new and novel in the policy? What's to like? Well, um, start, we're starting to see a vision of what Australian development cooperation is about, what, what it, a kind of identity might be um, for Australia as a development partner for the region and, and what place Australia wants to play in the world and in the region. And we'd certainly sort of seen that start to emerge in some of the foreign minister's public statements and speeches. Um, shaping this vision, but the policy is really the first big written uh, piece of policy that we've seen that starts to articulate that. Also something that's new in the policy or, um, or sort of different from previous policy statements is starting to see a bit more of a um, complexity lens at play in the way that the policy shapes really the challenges that Australia is facing. So there's a, a global challenges map that sort of demonstrates all the way in which all of these things are interconnected. So shocks, global trends, underlying fragilities, and the way that they are all mutually reinforcing and, and need to be addressed in a sort of complex systems way, um, rather than what we might have seen previously, which was seeing the world more in the sense of sectors. So sectoral investment in, say, health or education or governance, those kind of conceptualisation. Um, in terms of what's uh, maybe not necessarily new and novel, but um, and what we might have expected, but certainly good to see, are uh, some of the big policy and thematic commitments that this government's made. So putting First Nations perspectives and policy right up 
front in our development policy and, and in, indeed in Australia's international engagement with the world. Uh, climate change, not a surprise. Again, something that this government has made it clear is a big commitment of theirs, but committing to both uh, helping economies transition and decarbonise, uh, but also to mitigation and adaptation. Uh, and again, as well, something that we were expecting to see in the policy is uh, that commitment to locally led development and um, really re reflecting a shift that, f again, um, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and International Development Minister Pat Conroy have spoken about a lot, which is about listening to the voices of the region and really responding to local priorities. They've made that a big feature of their engagement, uh, that sense that Australia is there not to impose its priorities from the outside, but to really um, respond to what partners want and, and what partners really see as, as their preferred, uh, how they think they, they want to develop and where Australia should be investing its development assistance. Um, another commitment in the policy that is new um, or we'll, we'll be watching is uh, some language in the policy about engaging with risk um, and making meaningful changes to the way in which Australia and, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade will, will work in terms of being um, a bit more innovative and a bit more responsive. In terms of what's missing in the policy, which of course is the other part of, of, a, of our analysis, certainly in a lot of the analysis that has been in the public domain since the policy was launched, um, budget. That's, that's a big unanswered question. So um, certainly the Development Policy Centre, which is another think tank um, that we work with in this space, um, has done lots of really great analysis about the trajectory of Australia's ODA budget over the years and over the coming years based on what's in the public domain. Um, and linked to that, that's not just about dollars, but it's about what is Australia's ambition for development? And um, there's some language in the policy about how the, the decade ahead is going to be a decisive decade for global development. And the question that certainly we're asking is, well, do are we are we matching that with budget and with ambition? Um, and at the moment, th there isn't any additional budget attached to to this policy. There there is a slight rebuilding of the budget over the the sort of forward decade. So there will be a bit of a rebuilding of the aid budget over the coming years. Uh, but if you look at our uh, ranking in the OECD DAC. Uh, ODA to GNI rankings. We're still one of the least generous OECD donors and I think it's really a question for Australia whether that aligns to uh, the place that we want to have in the world and who we see ourselves as um, in terms of being a development partner. Um, and then in terms of what's still to be tested in the policy or, or what's I guess unanswered is uh, really how they're going to go about implementing this. And when I say they, I mean really the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but it is a development policy that makes a number of commitments to whole of government coordination and implementation. So it is a whole of Australian government challenge now to put this policy into action. So that's certainly something we'll be watching closely at the lab is how this policy gets translated into different ways of working, different structures, um, different uh, sort of mechanisms by which Australia engages with the world and organises itself around its development objectives. That's great. Um, I would like to follow up with some questions regarding um, the key partners um, when you define the Australia's ambitions and its budget and how you know the 
uh, the foreign ministers and the development minister of Australia, they have been holding up and saying that their international influence must be must be mitigated and of course it should be held from within and um, we should be overcoming that and focusing more upon the key partners. So how and what what would be the key partners for Australia in the coming decades? That's a great question. So in terms of our key partners, I mean, I, I think um, you can think about it in a couple of ways, obviously. And we, we use the word partner. We, the sort of Australian government policymakers, use it um, pretty loosely. But uh, in terms of Australia as, a, as, an, as an actor in, in the Indo-Pacific, our key partners are both the countries of the Pacific and Southeast Asia that we have development relationships, but they're also uh, strategic relationships. They're also trading relationships. They're also investment relationships. So they really are partners in, in the key sense of the world. But if you think about Australia also as, as a rich country, as a developed country that is uh, working in these countries, our key partners are really those like-minded countries that you see uh, us working with through those uh, global and, and, and minilateral groupings like the Quad, so India, Japan and the US, uh, also other partners in the G20, um, our, our partners in regional organisations like ASEAN, the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, and also, um, you know, some, some interesting sort of new groupings that have emerged. So, for example, um, we do some trilateral work with the US and Japan um, around infrastructure. Uh, Australia has a, a range of different trade and investment groupings, uh, and we're, we're active, obviously, in other groups like G20 and APEC as well. That's great. So I believe that you have been a part of the Australian government for like over a decade, and including the former Australian aid agency, OSAID, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So what shapes Australia's approach to engaging with the Indo-Pacific, like you mentioned, in terms of, you know, having engagement with the key partners like G20 and Quad specifically? So enlighten us. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, I, w I will give the caveat that um, I'm going to give you the policymaker and the analyst answer to this question, not the theorists, yep. because there are a lot of really great thinkers and, and writers who have written extensively on this topic. Um, and really, my experience is about what it's like as a as a policymaker, as a diplomat, as a development practitioner, sort of working more at the coalface. Um, what what are the things that shape the way that that we engage? So, you know, I think um, the the two core threads for for any government really engaging in the world or any nation is interests and values and I think that's a, a sort of a pretty common framing and so Australia's interests in obviously its own security and prosperity and its values in terms of um, you know a free open and, and stable Indo-Pacific and I think often there's a lot of commentary about there being a tension between those two or in the Indo-Pacific um, when we're, we're engaging with partners um, whether we can talk about values and whether we can lead with values and I think um, we've seen Foreign Minister Penny Wong talk a lot about rather than values but about the character of the region and what is the character of the region that we'd like to see and it's certainly one that um, you know runs on agreed rules where everyone is you know no nation is subject to coercion or leverage um, and all of that is about really saying we want an, a, a region, a, a, an Indo-Pacific region that, um, you know, aligns with Australia's interests and is a place where Australia can operate freely and, and um, in 
pursue its own security and prosperity. As I, as I sort of said in the previous question, the way in which Australia it does that is obviously through its bilateral relationships. And I talked about our relationships with nations in obviously Southeast Asia and the Pacific, but the Indo-Pacific, as we know, is much broader than that. Um, and, and also through our multilateral engagement, um, you know, obviously we're part of the multilateral system and all of these big and little alliances that we have, um, you know, the big ones, ANZUS, um, AUKUS, uh, you know, all the USs um, and the little the littler ones or the, the minilateral ones that are constantly shifting and evolving and different alliances of sort of an alignments of interests and, and values. So if you think about bilateral engagement, which has really been um, the lens through which I have mostly worked and particularly in the Pacific, um, I think really what shapes Australia's engagement with those countries is about really pursuing shared interests and it not being a zero-sum game where, you know, one person's winning so the other person's losing, but really understanding that there are areas where um, both partners or, or multiple partners, if you're thinking regionally, um, can work together for something that is for the benefit of everyone. And certainly um, in the development space, a lot of what Australia does is about working towards the development priorities and objectives of the countries that we work in. But of course, that's to Australia's benefit because a a prosperous and stable Pacific is absolutely in Australia's interest. It is, it is core to Australia's national interest that we have a region where people can live productive lives, where um, states are strong and secure and where everyone can reach their potential. So it's an interesting way of thinking about interests, I think, that we can expand on a bit more. Um, but really, I think in terms of the, the way that we engage, as I said, this new government has signalled that it wants to change the way that it engages and, and do a lot more listening. Um, and certainly that's been reflected in the pace of travel and engagement that you've seen from, from uh, both Wong and Conroy around the region. I think over the coming decade, let's say, or just over the rest of this term of government. Um, Australia does have a choice about what kind of development partner it wants to be. So there has been a big focus, I think, of um, a, a bit of a reset um, in the way that Australia engages. And then I think as that reset has been achieved and, and there's a bit of a stability to build on. So Australia has a choice about um, what is the vision of development cooperation it wants to pursue? Is it the kind of development cooperation that um, really looks at what are some of the binding constraints to development in the countries or the regions in which it works and works to untangle them working with a range of partners? Or is it a version of development that is extremely agile, extremely responsive to government priorities and is really about building influence and about um, competing for some of the, um, for that influence and, and within a geostrategic competition. Um, it's not, hasn't quite been settled as far as I'm concerned. I think that's still something that we're going to see play out and something that we'll be watching very closely at the lab. That's great. Um, you mentioned about the um, quote by in the Foreign Minister Penny Wong that the characteristics of the region are very decisive and of course Australia's partnership with the Indo-Pacific nations and even Oceania, it's quite decisive and it uh, impacts not just their uh, development policy but also ours as well. So 
um, you know, there is always a challenging issue which comes up, like which is the indivisible security. So it is basically it's one of the historical terms which is being used since the uh, Cold War era as well. It states that the sec security of one nation is inseparable from other countries and its regions. Like, yeah, it's impacting more of others and less of others. So it still holds the relevance in the current world era as well. Like you see that um, Russia's invasion to Ukraine because of uh, Ukraine's participation and its uh, joining of NATO. And then moreover, China also promotes this term as a part of its promoted global security initiative, which is what we known as primarily Eastern NATO. So how would you define the indivisible security in the Indo-Pacific region when it comes to Australia's engagement? Well, Vishwas, this is where I'm going to get a bit cheeky and I'm actually going to put it back on to you. How would you de define indivisible security? Because you are someone who is studying this right now um, and I am not. So you tell me what indivisible security means to Australia. Of course, so this has been quite a big issue, indivisible security. And under the gap of this, we don't have actually some common terminology and uh, acceptance of this. It is like similar to terrorism, where we don't agree upon a lot of things. It's, yeah. uh, it's a big and an ongoing issue. So back in the Cold War era, we would say like under the garb of indivisible security, there would be Cuban Missile Crisis, then there would be uh, nuclear uh, weapons, which would be uh, installed like in the Turkey area as well during the Cold War and the USSR would be panicked and everything would be happening. Even this era, if you see Russia's invasion of Ukraine under the garb of indivisible security happened and we don't know what, why and when it will result and what will be the aftermath of this entire war crisis, which is uh, unfortunately the entire world is suffering and the people who are innocent and there's hunger, starvation and so much things going on and impacting the world order in overall. Even China we see under the Gabo Indivisible Security we see an, an issue of the Nine Dot Line and the issue with the South China Sea as well. It is an ongoing issue and uh, of course we can say about Taiwan as well and uh, the, this issue will further impact the global markets because Taiwan is like having one of the biggest uh, semiconductor companies as well, like TSMC and uh, Foxconn as well. So these are the issues which will not impact just the political scenario, which we often, you know, mistake it believe into. But we need to focus upon the technological aspects because it will be impacting the manufacturing sector of all developing nations as well, including Quad nations and uh, even oceanic regions like uh, PNG, Solomon Islands, and. Uh, uh, even New Zealand and, of course, Australia as well. So that will be my comment upon it. I think that's a great answer to that question. So I'd like to ask more about the Australian's international development policy, which has just recently been launched, and how do you think it addresses the security risk and ensures stability in a region Oceania. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a um, it's a connection that we're seeing more and more, that link between um, how development interplays with security and stability. I mean, obviously, through uh, the lens of um, that civil military um, response to crises or humanitarian um, events, there is that existing understanding of those kind of short-term, short-onset crises and, and the role that humanitarian aid or development um, assistance can play in responding to that. But I think there's also really a, a big part for development to play in uh, preventing some of those security and stability risks or at least 
helping to sort of mitigate them. So um, Heather Smith, who is a sort of renowned national security thinking and a bit of a hero of mine, um, talks about the decade coming as being disruptive, disorderly and dangerous. And uh, she she gave a, a lecture towards the end of last year uh, talking about what the big four challenges are going to be for the world over the next decade. So the first one of those, she talked about deglobalisation and, and degrowth and the rise of economic protectionism. Uh, she talked about geostrategic competition, rising geostrategic competition and a, a struggle against authoritarianism. She talked about technology shifts that we're seeing and the potential rise of um, techno technofascism or a technologically enabled authoritarianism. And then she also talked about climate change and as we increasingly feel the effects of that and the challenge of decarbonising our economies. So if you think about those big challenges, although the root causes can't necessarily be addressed or, or um, sort of fixed by external development assistance, there's certainly a role to play for development assistance in uh, ameliorating some of the consequences or the side effects um, and helping to uh, or contributing to the alleviation of those things. So if you think about um, certainly some of Australia's development assistance um, programs in the region, programs that work to advise partner governments on things like macroeconomic policy, on trade liberalisation, putting in place strategies to ensure broad-based and equitable growth or even just basic poverty reduction and social safety nets. That's definitely something that Australia could be doing in the region to sort of address some of those big four mega trends. If you think about some of the work that Australia and other donors do around things like civic space, creating more space for democracy promotion and protection, uh, and one of the big foci in the new policy, which is about effective and accountable states. Also, if you think about some of the programs that Australia and its, and, um, its partners invest in that really look to unlock advancements in technology and, for example, provide remote access to more services. Um, and then certainly with climate change, there's a whole lot that um, that development assistance can do, both in terms of um, adaptation and mitigation, but also that green energy transition. So off-grid mini solar programs and um, working with big economies and little economies to to sort of um, shift away from fossil fuels. So they're some of the big global things that um, that Australia can do in terms of contributing to some of those global public goods and ensuring that there's a bit of an effort to sort of address some of those, um, to, to contribute to the solutions to some of those big challenges. But there's also um, a lot that we do at the bilateral level as well through our engagement with countries in the region um, that's about security and stability. Whether you think about security in terms of the internal security of some of these places and certainly that's where I'd say if you think about Australia's development efforts as more than just our aid programs, um, you know, some of our defence cooperation, our policing cooperation can be really vital to the security and stability of those countries and I think we've seen it just in the last few years in Solomon Islands. Um, but also if you think about the security in terms of human security and certainly in the Pacific, um, there's been a big push 
by our Pacific partners to try and broaden the scope of what we understand as, this, as security. So the Boy Declaration really um, defines it in terms of human security. And um, so there's, there's plenty that Australia can be doing through its development program and its foreign policy writ large to be focusing on security and stability in the region. Are you ready to take your career to new heights? Whatever your goals or passions, postgraduate study can help get you there faster. From short courses that can be completed in just six months to dual discipline master's programs that allow you to specialise in your chosen field, there is no better place to study law, international relations and diplomacy than the Australian National University in Canberra, the nation's law and policy-making heart. Applications are now open at the ANU College of Law. Choose from our flagship Master of Laws, a one-year full-time program open to both law and non-law graduates with five distinct specialisations. The Juris Doctor, which is your pathway to becoming a practising legal professional. Or the Graduate Certificate of New Technologies Law, which is delivered entirely online and explores the rapid advancements of artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain and more on the legal landscape. Best of all, you'll learn from some of the world's foremost experts that include judges and policymakers from across Australia, not to mention legal scholars at the top of their fields in international law, national security, diplomacy and more. Our graduates go on to achieve remarkable success in their careers, making their mark in law firms, government agencies, the international civil service and beyond. So if you're ready to unlock your potential and new career opportunities, study law and change the world at ANU. Visit law.anu.edu.au to explore our programs and begin your journey today. That's great. You mentioned about the challenges um, Australia is, will be facing in the coming decade or at least for for the time being this particular government is in power. Um, the development policy which uh, is currently being introduced and the challenges it faces like what's missing. You mentioned that climate change will be a big aspect. Of course, ambition must be straight and the challenges which we are having, it uh, should be very germane, right? Um, even if I can, if I can recall very much um, last year's COP27, where Australia's participation was quite quoted by many analysts to be not that satisfactory. Um, I would like to talk more about the growth prospects um, um, when it comes to discussing these challenges, of course. So, you know, you have spent a considerable amount of your time and career thinking and writing and about the Pacific and the PNG. And as a PNG analyst for the Office of National Intelligence, and before that, you were posted to PNG with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT. How do you see PNG's development trajectory unfolding over the next decade, and what will that mean for Australia and overall? Yeah, great question. Um, like everyone, PNG is going to be facing the same global headwinds, you know, the ones that um, I sort of described in, in my previous answer that Heather Smith so eloquently unpacked. So all of that is going to um, really face all of it. But PNG particularly, I think, is really facing a pretty decisive decade. Um, so, you know, from an economic growth perspective, uh, PNG has seen, you know, really high levels of economic growth Um over the last decade, but um, it's all come from resource, well, not all of it, but a, a big part of it has come from resource growth um, and big resource projects. Um, and so there's a there's a huge pitfall there for, for every economy. You know, it's something we know about the resource curse. 
Uh, so how PNG can really transition or can encourage um, something that looks more like broad-based growth, uh, whether that's from the agriculture sector or other sectors, is really going to be a challenge for PNG's government over the coming years, also because some of those big resource projects are currently stalled or inactive and it's a little unclear about um, when they may come online. Um, a big question related to that is really PNG's macroeconomic stability and setting. So some big policy choices for the government to make uh, around how it structures its budget and how it ensures that it's got the right balance there. I think a big challenge facing PNG, and there have just been headlines on it recently, are those security and law and order challenges. So um, there's some really quite quite uh, extreme tribal violence happening in the highlands um, that periodically bubbles over, but it seems to be getting worse. Um, certainly for me as, a, as an external observer, um, and it seems to be changing a little bit, the nature of it. So we've seen um, just in the last little while, uh, well, certainly headlines about some ransom and kidnapping um, uh, cases that have occurred that seem to indicate that there's a bit of a shift undergoing in the nature of um, PNG's internal security challenges, which have been ever present in PNG, but appear to be on a downward trend. Um, and linked to that is violence against women and girls, um, and generally uh, gender equality in PNG. So if you think about sort of the three pillars that certainly Australia works on in terms of gender equality, so sort of violence, violence um, political access and representation and economic participation, um, PNG is doing better in terms of political representation in the sense that it in its last parliament ending in 2022 it had no women in parliament and now it has a few um but it's still nowhere near the levels of parity that you'd want to see um and there are lots of barriers to women participating in formal politics um certainly violence against women and girls levels of sexual violence shockingly high um and linked to that as well uh issues around access to services health education um so certainly not at the levels that we'd want to see. Um, and economic participation as well is, is an area to work on. Um, health and education service delivery, uh, it's, it's always been a challenge in PNG, but again, it's really that, um, that, that challenge of getting services down to the community level, which uh, a lot of countries that are big and have challenging geography uh, really struggle with. Uh, but in PNG, again, there's been a gradual decline over the last little while. Big infrastructure challenges across the country. So connectivity is a big one. Um, obviously, road access, but also maritime, aviation, big, big needs there. And then just in terms of, um, I guess, from a political and sort of internal domestic um, security point of view, in the next decade, uh, it's likely that there'll be some kind of resolution on the question of Bougainville's political status. So uh, there was a referendum in 2019 on Bougainville's independence. There was an overwhelming vote for yes. And really now um, there is a process uh, between the PNG government and the autonomous Bougainville government to um, deal with the results of that referendum. And while there is no 
clear time frame for when that will be resolved, certainly something is likely to shift in the next 10 years. And really with that comes questions around um, what's happening outside of PNG, which I think you really have alluded to in a few of your questions, which is the strategic competition that we're seeing in the Pacific, but across the Indo-Pacific. But for Australia, it's really what's happening um, in, our, in our near region that uh, takes up a lot of our attention. Uh, which is the sort of the the contest for influence and access that we're seeing between um, China and other partners. So you know you would have seen in PNG over the last few months they've had a string of world leaders come through. So uh, Modi, Macron, um, Blinken in the place of Biden, uh, and it, it really demonstrates um, how kind of pivotal PNG is seen by many in terms of its, secu- its, its strategic location and really its role as the biggest Pacific Island nation. So, you know, it's a nation of, I think, 11 million is, is the population that they've settled on now. You know, um, biggest economy, uh, but also really facing some of the biggest development challenges. So what does that mean for Australia? Well, I think, um, you know, from a strategic point of view and from a security point of view, um, it's it's a big part of the Australian strategic imagination that Australia, that PNG really is um, in many ways our northern frontier and certainly that was the experience during Second World War um, that, you know, it, it, PNG forms our northern approaches and so I think uh, that takes up a lot of uh, strategic imagination, this anxiety and this worry about, um, about PNG as a potential, uh, I guess, staging point for... Um, a hostile external power that um, may wish to threaten our northern approaches. Um, But it's really, it's so much more than that. It's not just about who might get access to PNG. It's also, it's what PNG means to Australia. I mean, we were the colonial administrators in PNG. There's a huge legacy there for Australia um, and across the Pacific, really. But it's a place that means its future is really entwined with ours because not only um, do we have strategic interests there, but we have huge contributions to make in terms of economic growth, in terms of development, in terms of uh, really supporting PNG to be the prosperous, secure and stable nation that it, it wants to be. That's a fabulous answer, to be honest. I'm seeing this trend of, with PNG as well to the other countries in the global south. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, strategic partnerships with Australia with other global south countries, like, you know, um, you said about uh, partnerships of different categories, like, you know, it can be strategic, it can be historical, it can be defensive, it can be anything, but depending upon the characteristics. And, of course, you know, Australia continuously signing up different FTAs, um, the Economic Strategic Partnerships Agreements and... Uh, to increase more economic cooperations within the region. So that brings us to us the last part of the podcast, unfortunately. Um, I would like to know, like, you know, I was reading this book. Um, this has been recently released by Tent Morgan. It's uh, about the think tanks in Australia in the 21st century. And it has been categorically added by him, the author, that think tanks will be one of the biggest institutions shaping the Um, political and economic and social outlook of any country. So it will be enacting like an invisible fifth part of democracy, which is something that I'm quite intrigued to know from you. So 
I would like to put it in a question way. So how will the lab play its crucial role in the coming years as Australia works towards its foreign policy goal of a peaceful, stable and prosperous in the Pacific? Well, I like that, Vishwas. I like the idea that we're some kind of critical part of the um, of the conversation that certainly aligns with our interests, I think, and our vision and mission. Um, so I think in terms of the lab, I really, as I said at the start, you know, we, we see our role as doing two things, one being about shaping the debate and really helping to um, put a, create a platform for those insights and to really connect that um, what Bridie would call the kind of intelligence from from the ground into the hands of policymakers, and then the other thing is is working with policymakers in quite a hands-on way on what are the live problems that they're experiencing right now, and and can we help them to get to a solution, or can we do a bit of analysis or research that really helps them untangle some of those problems? So I think that's what we'll continue to do. It'll really be about working um, both. To, to sort of shape the debate and then also help to solve some of those live policy challenges. And I think certainly as Australia implements its development policy, that will be a big thing that we're looking at is um, how is this being experienced as Australia goes and implements its development programs? Um, there's a lot in the policy that is getting put into the implementation bucket, as is right. You know, policy can only go so far and then it's really up to the policymakers, the bureaucrats, the ministers, um, the whole ecosystem to put those changes into practice, to really walk the talk and to engage in a different way. And we're looking forward to being part of that. That's great. So last but not the least, what will be your message to our future national security leaders aka our delegates of SCSS 2023. So, and uh, like who will be participating in the different policy making departments like you have worked in, let's say DFAT or uh, the DSTG or the Department of Education. So how would you seek that these policy makers like the aspiring aspirants and the foreign policy strategists who will be becoming in the future, how do you think that they should be shaping their mindset in this present scenario, in the present world? Because the you know, the development policy strategies are just becoming so complex day by day. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess my first piece of advice, which may not be relevant given that your delegates have sort of already started on this path, but my first piece of advice would be don't be afraid to take a non-traditional path into this world. Um, I certainly did. I started my career almost 20 years ago as a journalist um, and I kind of ended up in international affairs sort of by accident or sort of by design. And um, once I started working on foreign policy and development issues, um, it really took me in a completely different direction than I was expecting, but one obviously that has been amazing and very fulfilling. So yeah, don't be afraid, sort of experiment, do different things, follow your passion and then sort of um, follow it where it leads. And on that on that same note, and be sure to do other things. I mean, I think the thing that's really helped me in my career is having that on the ground lived experience at different levels and on different things. Um, 
So certainly, you know, my advice would be um, where you can, particularly if you want to be an analyst working on issues to do with countries in our region, work in those countries, get out there, um, understand what the issues are that the people in the countries that we're working with are grappling with on the day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis. Try and understand um, what their incentives are, how those systems work, what are the drivers, because um, if you sit in Australia the whole time, it's, it's very hard to understand those things until you get there and you actually talk to people in these countries and and your eyes are opened. Um, My other piece of advice, and I'm actually stealing this one from um, the Secretary of DFAT when I was there for for a while, Peter Varghese, which was his advice to the department and to to officers was develop a worldview. So um, don't just kind of take the the views and and the opinions that are are told to you. Really think hard about, well, what do I think about this? And and what's my sense of of how Australia should be tackling these issues and, and what these what these dynamics mean and how these systems work. And my, I guess, addition to that would be develop a self-view. So I think self-awareness and understanding who you are and what attributes you have is really important. And um, this is some research that the lab has has done actually around what are the attributes of a really effective development practitioner. And um, that's about really understanding that, you know, there are skills and there are capabilities that you can build. There's knowledge that you can go out and acquire. But those core things about who you are and how you operate and how you relate to people, they're so fundamental to success, particularly in development, but I think in any area of policy making. Um, so think about yourself and, um, and, and so some of those attributes that, uh, that we found in, in that research were things like humility and curiosity and resilience they're all really important. So develop those up and and, and recognise what the attributes you're bringing to things are. And I guess my other piece of advice, which is really to the the women who might be listening, the young women um, or old women, (laughs) Um, you know, because national security as a sector um, can be a a tough sector to work in as a a woman. Um, And it's one that there aren't always clear entry paths. And uh, I think, you know, for various reasons, you know, often to do with sort of just the the funneling that happens from what what people choose to study and sort of where they end up. There are fewer women working in, in national security. That's certainly been my experience. So I guess my advice to to those women, if they're listening, is take your place. Um, You know, really don't be afraid um, to to enter those rooms and to to put yourself up for those opportunities and um, to work in those agencies and to pursue that career. Um, And when you're there, um, agitate for better policies and practice. Um, put it back onto the leaders of those agencies, connect with other women in community, build those networks, um, those peer support uh, relationships. And it is exhausting. Um, and it is exhausting to have to always be the one who's doing it. But the women who come after you will really thank you. Um, thank you. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks, listeners, for listening to us. And thank you, Heather, for having us. And of course, um, I would like to thank the entire lab team and, of course, our, the very on CEO writing as well so that's great great thank you so much for us it's been a pleasure